Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. I'm delighted to say on the podcast this week, I'm joined by Dominic Dale, very experienced pro now, over 20 years on the tour, winner of two major ranking titles and still very much going strong. Dominic, what was your introduction to snooker? Well, I had two older brothers. I was living in Coventry then, I was born in Coventry, um, and my father bought uh, a small table for Christmas, a 6 by 3 a quarter-sized table, um, probably for my brothers to play on but um, they were more interested in electric guitars and heavy metal music that's what they used to play <laughs> as like you know early teenagers mm. and I was about seven or eight at the time or seven actually and um, I just fell in love with the colour balls and was fascinated by the game and I was, I was so small I remember using that sort of almost cue underarm because I was so <laughs> short but I was just fascinated by the game and I seemed to it was I'll I, I never forget one or two the pots I potted the first ever time I'd ever played and yeah. I seem to have a, a sort of a bit of an aptitude for the game, really, at that young age. But I just loved it, and I was glued to it, and I started watching it on television, and that's that's how it sort of started for me at the age of six or seven. So, did, what, did you join a club and start playing regularly? Not really. Um, I played <coughs> after a year or so. We got a much better quarter-sized table, right. um, and that was set up in our uh, study area in in uh, Coventry. So I grew up in Browns Lane near the Jaguar factory, and. Um, um, we had a side boys. I used to actually play the snooker music. Right, okay. <laughs> While I was practicing, yeah. I just loved the whole game. And um, yeah, my my first ever shot, funnily enough, was when <laughs> I was about ten years old on a full size team. Mm. My father used to work for a machine tool company called Whitman's in Coventry, that's long gone now. And they had their own sort of working men's club there. And uh, I remember him picking me up and, and carrying me through a window that was open on a hot summer's evening to actually play a shot as I wasn't really allowed in there and I remember yeah. playing the brown off its spot into the middle pocket from the D while the table looked like a football pitch I think mm. I overcut it by about three inches but <laughs> that was my first ever shot on a full wow. size at the age of uh, probably about ten yeah so how did your career develop because at some point you moved to Wales don't you yeah at the age of um, eleven I think or twelve I moved to Wales yeah my father was made redundant after Whitman's uh, finished and uh, he bought this cottage in Wales and um Decided to uh, to carry on playing snooker while I lived in Wales, and um, what really turned things around for me was there was a, a children's television program called the Saturday Show. Mm. Uh, the hosts were Tommy Boyd and Isla St Clair, and uh, they announced this big tournament, the Riley National Junior Championship, which okay. was a, a nationwide competition with heats all over the country. Mm. Uh, my heats were in Cardiff, um, and I I won all the heats. I, th- I don't know why. A lot of the players thought. 
the tournament was going to be played on a full-size table, and, and I knew it was on a 6 by 3 which I was very accustomed to. <laughs> yeah. My highest weight then was 67. Right. And uh, <laughs> I had this tiny queue that was actually not legal. It was only 34 inches long. Right. I had a great big 11mm tip on it. It was just one of these terrible things you get with a small table. And um, I played a couple of guys, actually, Ian Sargent and Anthony Davis, who later became professional players in, in Wales. And... Um, yeah, I won all the heats, and then I was in uh, the last 16, and I played in Sutton Coalfield, the last 16 down to the final. Now, the final was being televised on the Saturday show, and I was, yeah, I was 12 years old then, and uh, amazingly, I kept winning matches all the time, and I got through to the final to be on the Saturday show. Wow. And um, I played a guy from Scotland called Colin Simpson. No one's ever heard of him. Mm. Uh, I don't know what happened. Obviously, didn't keep, keep it up, the practice and the, and the game of snooker, generally. But... Um, Guests at that TV appearance uh, for the Saturday show were, were Terry Griffiths, C. Davis, Tony Mayo, and Dennis Taylor. Right. And I played a doubles match with them, um, lost in the final of that, but I won the actual whole event outright, the singles. And I'll never forget Tony Mayo saying to my father, he said, Your son could be a really good player if you had a full size table to play on. So within a year, we converted one of the outbuildings uh, in West Wales where we were living. I had a, a full-size snooker room, and that's when obviously started to make progress. Then I played in the snooker leagues. Then a couple of years later, as a 14-year-old schoolboy, mm. and you've got some match experience, and it, that's where it all sort of stemmed from. Was playing the Welsh junior, the yeah. Welsh youth, the Welsh senior. You know, those were the stepping stones, really. Then, yeah. Okay. I should just say, by the way, if you can hear, if you're listening to this, you can hear clinking and so on. We're in a restaurant, so that's that's what it is. We're not just sort of making a lot of noise. Um, but so, okay. So it's a very strong area, obviously Wales for amateur snooker, and you you. Did really well, and you ended up in the World Amateur Championship final at a very young age. Yeah, that was amazing. I, I won the Welsh. It was a strange time because the game had gone open in 1991, and a lot of the players that were still playing in the amateur game in Wales, people like Anthony Davis, yeah. Ian Sargent, Paul Dawkins, they were sort of halfway through their amateur season uh, and decided to turn professional. So they were taken out of the ranking list, and all of a sudden it, it enabled me to really shoot up the Welsh amateur rankings. Because Antti was number one at the time in terms pros in the amateur rankings, so he was taken off the list. And I won the Welsh amateur championships beat, uh, in the Newport Centre, beat David Bell 8-5, uh, um, yes, in the final. And uh, I became number one in Wales, and David Bell was number two, and so we jointly represented Wales in, in the World Amateur Championships, which was in Thailand of all places. Yeah. And yeah, incredibly, I played above myself. I was playing at a level, being there... I know, playing for Wales, I don't know what it was, but um, playing matches and the importance of the tournaments, I was finding a level of performance that I'd never achieved in practice or matches before. Something brought something out of me. Mm. And I kept winning matches and I got all the way through to the final. And um, oddly enough, David Bell actually beat Ronnie in that. Ronnie was there yeah. that year uh, as a 15 year old. I think David Bell was uh, uh, reaching 5 4. But in the, and, and David lost in the quarter-final to the chap who beat me, Nopadon Nopatron, mm. who beat me 11-9 in the final, a Thailander, mm. who played such fantastic snooker. I mean, I must have played really well. I remember his level of play, and, uh, you know, for him to have beaten me, you know, I must have played really well to have lived with him, really, because uh, I, I rate him very highly. Mm. So that was sort of proof of your potential, but I think I'm right in saying you had one of, the, one of those rare things, Dominic, a job as well. Yes, um, <laughs> I know. Well, I had a bit of an education behind me. I did a BTEC National Diploma in Business and Finance. Um, I did the first year, got five merits in the constituent parts of the course, and um, I turned professional um, then in May 92, so I didn't do the second year of that. Mm. But I did, I worked in the, first year in a firm of solicitors in Carmarthen, 
but then in the police headquarters, David Powers Police Headquarters, which is just around the corner from where Matthew, yeah. Matthew lived, um, in Planet Gunner Road in Carmarthen, and um, we worked in the operations room on the switchboard and the radios, which oh. was a great job. Mm. Um, and I would have had a job there, I'm sure, had I not turned professional. Mm. I wanted to turn professional, but I, it was, I'd sort of, at that particular time, I'd lost my focus on being a professional player, funnily enough. Mm. I sort of, I don't know why, I wouldn't say I was disillusioned or anything like that, it's just, I don't even know that it was because I wasn't, I didn't think I'd be good enough or anything. Maybe I needed a sponsor and it would cost a lot of money. Mm. But I had a job and that was the way I was looking, I was going to have a career in the police. And when I turned professional, the chief superintendent, uh, Mike Gage, he said, well, give it a go, Dominic, and if it doesn't work out, you know, we'll give you a job back in the police. He wanted me to be an officer, I was a civilian at the time. And I probably would have liked to have been an officer because I like discipline. I'd like to have yeah. been in the RAF or something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, that type yeah, of thing would have, yeah. uh, I'd have liked very much. But mm. uh, I turned professional and uh, I still am one. But of course, when you turn pro, it's different to now. There were a lot of players, weren't there? there were hundreds and hundreds, and you had to go up to the Norbrek. We yeah. often hear people talk about the Norbrek. A lot of people, new snooker fans, wouldn't really know what it was all about. But it was a big hotel in Blackpool. They had the big ballroom, lots of tables, lots of people, lots of matches. Yeah. An interesting time. You were there for sort of three months, really. You would play batches of matches for each event. There were maybe ten events, ranking events, and you play your first four rounds in each of those events. And then the next band of seedings would come in. Yeah. The top one to eight, then the top sixty-four. Mm. And one thing I remember is when I mean I think there were eight hundred and forty-two pros when I turned mm. pro. That's that gives you an idea of the scale <laughs> of the game when the game went open. Yeah. All the amateurs turned professional. Um, and the majority of the amateur players were great players, far better than the lower-ranked professional players at that time, mm. and they were getting hammered. And uh, by the amateur players coming through, so who just turned professional. But uh, I remember, yeah, it was funny because there were so many card schools and, and people going out nightclubbing and drinking, <laughs> getting into terrible states, and, yeah. and these were the guys that were there, maybe had good sponsors, but weren't really there. They were there to have a good time. They weren't there to mm. be professional snooker players and have a eke out a career in the sport. But, you know, I remember when the 128 and particularly the top 64 would come to the Norbrek to play their matches, all the gambling, all the mm. drinking, all the card scores, they all stopped. Mm. You know, and it was a different world. Mm. And uh, you knew then, you know, the players that were there to win matches and be professional snooker players, yeah. not, not the guys that were there just, you know, for the joyride, as you say. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit like a sort of snook, snooker university, was it? And, wasn't it? And, of course, when people go to university, because they're away from home for the first time, they do have a drink and they enjoy themselves. But how, how did you find it? Did you find that you made progress straight away? Was it what you expected it to be? How, how did it sort of measure up to what you thought? It would be. Playing some of the bottom ranked professional players, um, I was amazed actually. Uh, I was, uh, it, it sort of dawned on me that I was a much better player than I thought I was. Oh, <laughs> I was yeah. winning quite a lot of matches. I think in my first year as a pro, I actually I think I won about nine matches to play Ronnie O'Sullivan mm. in, in the World Championships. He beat me 10 5 or 10 4. He lost at the Crucible to McManus. I was only a round or two away from the Crucible myself yeah. my first year, yeah. from memory. Maybe in the second year, but I was winning a lot of matches. I think I started my second year as a professional, ranked 120 in the world. Okay. So, you know, there were 800 odd pros. Yeah. So I had a good first year, really. Mm. Um, but you are away from home a long time. Uh, maybe if I was 17 or 18, I'd have found that tough, but at least mm. by then I was 21 or something. Mm. Um, I was adult enough to, to, to cope with that. Mm. but you know, with so many professionals around and players that were not necessarily there 
you know, to do well at the sport, you, yeah. you could easily be you know, led astray and yeah. you know, go on all these sort of peccadilloes. <laughs> but also, every, every tournament is the same. You know, one day you're playing in the Dubai Classic, the next day the UK Championship, but it's not really the Dubai Classic till you get to Dubai, and it's not the UK till you got in those days to the Guildhall. It was just, you're just like in a snooker factory. Yes, that's right. Mm. Uh, you, I mean, I remember having to play the odd match here and then. I, I've come up against one of our Eurosport colleagues, Mike Hallett, yeah, yeah. and... Um, you know, all of a sudden you were playing somebody that, you know, you'd seen a lot on television, you know, and all of a sudden, and you could see the professionalism in them, their shot selection and everything, and you'd learn a lot from these guys. And I lost, I think, 5-3 to Mike to qualify for, I think, uh, Belgium or somewhere, the Humo Masters or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think after about two or three years, I did get to the odd venue, um, which was great. And then, you know, you start playing the top 16 players, which mm. was a great honour. I learned a lot. I think I played Hendry. I was actually 5-3, uh, I think I was 6-3 up on him and lost 9-6. He, he played phenomenal snooker mm. to beat me in the last, and I was playing so well because mm. play, of who I was playing. Mm. brought the best out of me, and I learned very quickly then, you know, about shot selection. And I think it's what a lot of the players do today, people like Neil Robertson and the yeah. Chinese players, when they come over here and play the British players, they learn while they're on the tour, the shot selections, yeah. and, you know, they lose so many frames when they play the wrong shot at the wrong time but yeah. I did that when I was a junior you know and uh, I learned from it and progressed and I definitely wanted to be a professional snooker player so I kept working on the game and uh, mm. you know and, and I got better and better Okay well that takes us nicely to the 1997 Grand Prix you've been on the, on the circuit a few years and this was your, your big breakthrough you win a BBC televised ranking event beat John Higgins in the final what are your memories of that week? Yeah, it's a strange one, that, because um, I was ranked 54 in the world, and I think Griffiths had decided to retire yeah. that year. Um, I was just It was like in any other normal event to me. I was just going to the venue to play my matches. I just kept winning matches. I, I think I beat Andy Hicks. Um, I beat Chris Small. I beat Steve Davis. And it was shown on Grandstand, actually. I was 2-0 down to Steve, and I remember going to the uh, lavatory. Um, and trying to compose myself, I, I said to myself, "I'm like, there's no way I'm going out there and losing in this fashion." I was showing him too much respect. He was dictating the play, and I came out more attacking player and actually won five straight frames and won five two. But I, I know I won that tournament, and it's a great achievement. But I was lucky in a way because I was four three down to Dave Harold. I think in the last sixteen maybe, mm. and I needed two snookers on the pink, and I got them and won that frame for four all. And I won the last frame on the pink, so I should have been out really. Um, I think a lot of players can say that, though. Even even the Hendries yes. and the Davises, things like that would have happened to them. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it's all part of the game, isn't mm. it? Getting snookers, and I did get them, and I did win that frame legitimately. Mm. But yeah, um, and I played Chris Small. I was two 0 down to Chris, and I think, uh, and I won five two. Uh, and all of a sudden, I'm in the semis then, and, I, and I'm playing Jimmy White, mm. who was having a bit of a resurgence at the time, and um, obviously crowd favourite Jimmy White playing at the Bournemouth International Centre, big crowd, television coverage, and a fabulous atmosphere. I think when you play a match like that, that's when you know you're going to be cut out for it or not, because yeah. if you if you have a fear of crowds, uh, I think it's demophobia, isn't it? Um, if you say so. Yes. Um, that's a fear of crowds, audiences and things. And, you know, the big time, the television cameras yeah. and whatnot. You're going to struggle, because if you're going to get anywhere in any sport, you're going to have yeah. to cope with that. And, and, and I did, and, and I was falling up on Jimmy. Came out to 4-2 and I won 6-2. And then I got the great man, the world number two at the time, John Higgins in the final. Well, that was the easiest match of my life, really. 
nobody expected to, uh, me to win. I didn't expect to win. Mm. All I, I never forget, I just went out there not wanting to be humiliated, just to play a snooker match as well as I can and see what happens. And John had a terrible run of the ball early on in, in the match and um, went 4-0 down to me. I made one fifty break, but I was playing quite well, but John, just nothing went right for him. And uh, he did his best to come back at me, and he got within a frame of me several times, but I won 9-6, and I did play very, very well the last couple of frames, I think made 120 in the 77. So, so you weren't feeling nervous as you got towards the winning line? You actually, no. you actually fancied you could then close it out? I didn't allow myself to think about it, actually. I remember being 5-3 up at the interval, and in my hotel room before the evening session began, Derek Hill... Yeah. Uh, uh, the Jan Tyriak of the super coaches <laughs> called me in the room and he said uh, says Dom says well played for today mate he says you're doing great he says, says let me give you one bit of advice he says when you go out there tonight whatever you do be prepared for 8 all. he's going to come back at you and he's going to yeah. do this and going to and that was I've never forgotten that what a great bit of advice because yeah. he fires you up on the world number two of course he's going to yeah. you know, try and attack me bully me get back at me put me under pressure but I never thought of that I just thought myself on 5-3 up here just thought of myself 5-3 moving forward mm. never thought of John coming back at me so in other words if that happened and it did happen I, wouldn't, I wasn't prepared for that mentally mm. I, I, it was something I'd across, that barrier I'd have crossed you know, when, if and when I came to it yeah. It was great advice. It's a great piece of advice for anybody to give to anybody in that mm. position, and uh, I've never forgotten it. Mm. I think I'm right in saying it was either the first ranking event of the season, or certainly one of the first. It and, was the first. Yeah. yeah. And of course, now, if if the ranking system now had been in place, then you would have got in the top 16 immediately. You'd probably been at the Masters, at the Crucible. But of course, it was different then, and yeah. you, you you then had to sort of follow it up, didn't you, for the rest of the season? And it was difficult. I think you found it quite difficult actually coping with winning the tournament. It was a monkey on my back. I hate that phrase, but it puts in that shell. I mean, I. I'd, I'd won something of great prestige I wasn't ready to win I was ranked 50 odd in the world never got I don't I doubt very much I ever got beyond the top 16 before and also I'm, I'm a winner and people are watching me in the same way I suppose that Stuart Bingham's been watched by everybody and yep. he's under by his standards of winning the world championships by his standards of very mediocre starts of the, mm. the, the season because he, he must be feeling that everybody's watching yep. him and he's under it and it's, it's the same type of thing I suppose and it took probably years. I, I knew I was a winner and a champion, and not many people are in snooker. And I sort of, I always, I had a great deal of self-esteem, but I wasn't producing the, the, the those sort of results to, to warrant that sort of self-esteem in a way. And it, and I didn't for years and years. And I sort of slotted nicely into yeah. my ranking position. That's where I was in the game, sort of just outside the sixteen, really. Yeah. But I. When you're a professional sportsman, this thing about, well, for me anyway, being in the 16s is, 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 is a lot of nonsense, really. It doesn't mean anything. Well, it didn't to me. I wasn't never bothered about that. But, yes, on the modern rank system, I would have been there many times because I think I've been provisionally uh, 12 uh, in the 16 a good few times during the season. But in those days, as you know, the rank system didn't count until the end of the World Championship. Yeah, so, yeah. floor system, possibly, maybe, I mm. don't know. But... Um, now, I mean, yes, I would have been in the 16 many times, but um, 
something on the thumbnail, and I've never actually officially been in, which is strange, but mm. never bothered me much. Well, there's still time, of course. There but, is, uh, yeah. So you, you win that, and you, you know you are a top player. You're still, you know, we see you regularly, tournaments, quarterfinals, semi-finals, and so on. But it's ten years then until you win your second one. And I remember the Shanghai Masters again. That was the first tournament of the season. It was earlier than the Grand Prix. Yes. And I was commentating for Eurosport, and day one of the tournament, Neil Fold said. He was looking down the drawer, he said, it's very difficult to pick a winner the first tournament of the season, but he said, you've got to look at the players who will have been practising in the summer. And he said, Dominic Dale will be one of them. He said, Dominic is, could be one to watch. And of course, he was absolutely right, because you beat Ryan Day in the final, and played really well, I think, that week. I did. You know, it was a strange story, this, because I wanted to change cues. Mm. I haven't done that many times. <laughs> um, and um, I'd ordered a, a three-quarter maple cue. Uh, one from John Paris and one from Trevor White, and I wanted it to be 18 and a half ounces. And Trevor's came um, about a couple of weeks before John's arrived, and I loved the queue to play with, but it was about 19 and a quarter ounces, and mm. very heavy. But I liked the queue, and I did change to it, and I actually played my qualifier uh, against Roy McLeod with it, and I mm. beat him 5 0. I made two centuries, a 68, and I played out my skin. And then about a week or so later, um, John Paris's uh, three-quarter maple arrived. Well, I found it played exactly like Trevor White's did, shots with side over distance and everything, but it was 18.5 ounces, and I liked the lightness of the shaft on my bridge, and so I changed over to it, and I went to Shanghai about six days later. The tables are very slow and heavy there, very hard to score. And um, I won my first match, I think, against Ken Doherty, and um, I thought to myself, God, these tables are playing a bit heavy. And incredibly, I managed to get some abrasive sorry, sandpaper yeah. um, from somewhere. Maybe the tournament's office, I don't know. Um, and I actually took about a millimetre out of the shaft, about sort of through the middle of the shaft, to create a bit more give, a bit more spring, flexibility in the shaft, to give me more ball reaction on the table. And uh, I just kept playing with it, and kept winning matches and playing really well. And Ryan should have beat me in the final. He was 6-2 up on me, playing great, and made two centuries. I think I made one. Maybe uh, he, he was playing some great snooker, but in the evening session it went on a bit. We only had about an hour and a half or an hour and three quarters, I think, for the start of the evening session. Well, I knew what I had to do. I just had to go for my shots, make something happen. And Ryan could not hit the proverbial barn door of the banjo. <laughs> he couldn't hit the right side of a ball on a long pot. He, I've never seen Ryan struggle like that. I don't think Ryan scored more than eighty points in the whole of the evening session in the seven frames, and I. Played really well. Yeah. I didn't make massive breaks, although first frame of the evening I did make that one four three, which mm. was the highest break of the tournament. So I won the highest break prize. But other than that, I kept just kept winning frames in a couple of visits because the table was slow and heavy. Mm. It went into the pack. The rest didn't disperse very well. And uh, but I didn't miss many pots, and I played really well. And, and incredibly, I won all all, the, all six seven frames of the evening session. It must have been satisfying ten years on, because you know you. I think if, after winning the Grand Prix in '97, if someone had said it's going to be another ten years till you win another big tournament, you'd probably be disappointed. But the fact is, you proved you could still do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, you just you, you, you try to prepare yourself for every tournament, but sometimes there's so many tournaments, mm. you're not as prepared as well individually for each tournament that comes along as you maybe were in the earlier days when there were only ten tournaments. Yeah. Um, and um, sometimes you, you get so used to mediocrity, winning a couple of matches and losing, yeah. that you, 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 don't, you don't see yourself as a winner anymore. Um, until maybe you do get through to the last 16 in the quarters and then all of a sudden 
you think you can win it. Mm. Something happens, you think, well, I've got this far now, there's only a few more matches left. Mm. You think you're one of the big boys now, and it just lifts you yeah. psychologically. And I think that's you know pretty much how I won that one. But mm. if you do look at being objective and realistic here, um, rather than sort of looking at things through rose-tinted yeah. spectacles, that you do get a you know a, a very diverse spectrum of winners in in some of those tournaments abroad, the Australian and the Chinese tournaments, um, more so possibly than you do in the British tournaments. I don't know why that is, but it does happen. Mm. So you know, I'm just one of those, I suppose. Well, of course, your other great triumph more recently was the shootout, which is a completely different tournament, often described as a bit of fun, but it's, it looks like high pressure to playing because it's so manic, isn't it? That is actually exactly the pressure that you feel there for ten minutes because one mistake, and it could be your last shot. Mm. The pressure there is incredible. Um, and I've got to be honest, that tournament isn't for everybody. Mm. The majority of snooker players are the more sort of boring, introverted people. Um, but every now and again, you know, you get an extrovert and comes along, um, like myself or Michael Holt or that type of guy, mm. and that tournament suits that style of player. Although saying that, you've had Barry Hawkins, a winner, who's a Nigel Bond, a Nigel Bond. <laughs> well, Nigel's a quick player, so that's that's yeah. one of the reasons he. They're won. clever players as well, though, aren't they? You got to have yeah. a bit of something upstairs because you oh, got to think really quickly. I managed that year to get the perfect balance in having great fun with the audience, mm. but taking it seriously as well. And the fun I was having with the audience took some of the pressure away, I suppose. But I remember playing the year before I won it, and I was a nervous wreck, and I lost to Mark Hallam. And I played in, in the year I won it, and I forgot all about the rule that a cue ball had to reach it, or a ball had yeah. to hit a cushion round. I left a safety shot short of the ball cushion. He's made 30, 34 of it, or 33, 38 nil up, but then made a few mistakes, and I got back in, and I, I won it with a minute or so left. And... Uh, I could have lost that match, but then I went on to... That was the only match I was in trouble. I hammered everybody else I played, which was fantastic, really. Mm. That tournament, funnily enough, um, is the favourite tournament of all the ones I've won. No. Because it puts snooker in, in, a, in the glitz and the glamour yeah. world, you know, with the walk-on girls. I'm good friends with Jade, one of the walk-on on, on ladies. Unfortunately, she lost her mother about a year ago, which was a great shame. I went to the funeral. But, um, but you know, to have that in snooker, mm-hmm. you know, the most... Sinfully boring introverted sports on television, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to have that around snooker, yeah. it's just fantastic. And you know, I shall always look back at that as the favourite tournament I've won, really. I really yeah. do think that. What you did after, of course, you, you treated the audience to a little bit of your singing. How, how did you, where did you get that voice from, Dominic? Well, you, the voice is something you're born with, really. Mm. Um, but obviously, you can train it, make it stronger, more powerful. That came about from I did an exhibition in Port Talbot with uh, Willie Thorne. Ryan was there and myself and at half time there was a singer on and I, would, I used to sing in the choir at school and I sing mm. a lot of Beatles songs and all kinds of stuff you know um, and um, I spoke to this guy I think his name was Neil he was, I could tell straight away he was a trained singer and uh, being Welsh I thought you know I'd, I'd have a chat with him and see must someone locally I did I remember at the time trying to find somebody who could be mm. singing lessons and he said, oh, a guy called Alan Davis from Neath uh, taught me to sing. Oh, right, so that's not far from where I live. Um, it's only about 40 miles. So uh, he gave me some contact details, and I, I got in touch with Alan, and he, sure enough, he gave singing lessons. So I started off, and uh, you do a few scales, and he, he's able to place your voice and, and things. And I liked opera at that time. Mm. Um, quite young, I was in my sort of early 20s, really, but 
Um, you, it's a bit like training in the gym. You know, your muscles develop, and it's the same with the voice. You do the scales, and your voice develops. Um, it was an interesting thing. I always used to listen to the crooners and Roy Orbison, one of our favourite singers ever, always will be, and Mario Lanza. And that lovely, even vibrato, that wave in the voice, that la, that lovely, <laughs> even tone. I always wondered how you achieve that, mm. whether, it's, whether it's something you actually put on. Uh, and I remember Alan, asking Alan this, and he said, no, he says, you don't, that, that, that's basically breath control. That comes with the training of the voice and everything, and it's natural and it'll just happen. Mm. And, and he's sure enough, he's right. And I, and I had lessons with him for probably 18 months or so. Mm. Um, maybe a bit less than that, but yeah, off and on. You're a man of many interests, though, aren't you? Because, you know, it's not just that. You, I mean, I know you like sort of old films, don't you? You've sort of visited old film locations <laughs> yeah. as well. Well, commentating for Eurosport, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, one of my favourite films was uh, The Green Man. It's a comedy film. It's only on for about um, an hour and ten minutes or something, I think. It, it was from a play by uh, Frank Launder, I think, in Sydney Gilliatt, uh, a play called Meet, Meet to Body. Mm-hmm. And it was made into a film with Alistair Sim and George Cole. And I love all the old films. I mean, George Cole actually was evacuated in the war. Unfortunately, sadly, no longer. Yeah. He's died in about a month or two. Yeah. But he was actually evacuated, I think, as an 80-year-old during the war, and Alistair Sim brought him up right. in, I think, Oxfordshire way. And he became a child actor and starred in many films with Alistair Sim, the St. Trinian's films mm-hmm. and The Green Man. And, um, yeah, uh, I found out through a film forum, um, I think Brit Movie, I think it's called. I was a member of it then. I still probably am, but I wouldn't have a clue how to sign in now. But I found out where the house was. Uh, it was in uh, in Surrey um, that was featured in the, heavily in the film, and I visited that. And uh, a great place called the Edgware Bury uh, Hotel um, near Bournewood Studios, Shepperton, that's all that area, and uh, where they filmed uh, things. Well, one of my favourite ever films, School for Scoundrels, with Terry Thomas, the tennis court where they where they play with the where he plays with Ian Carmichael. It's still there. Right. And I sat there with Jeanette Scott, the, the beautiful lady was in the film. Um, I sat exactly where she was sat watching the tennis. It was great, you know, and I was having breakfast there. It was a big hotel, I think it's a chorus hotel. Fantastic, you know, and I visited them for a day. And, yeah, I do like the old films. I don't like this gratuitous violence, these American films, all bombs, explosives and shooting people. I'm afraid that's not for me. They're right. classless. Okay. There are the odd great films. Yeah. Some of them are too graphic for me and I don't like them. Marilyn Monroe is another interest of yours. Yes, I used to be uh, a big fan of Marilyn Monroe um, as, a, as a kid. Um, beautiful, beautiful woman. I always wondered what it was about Marilyn that drew so many millions of fans to her. She had something I thought nobody else had. And I just think it's... Uh, I sort of managed to sort of quantify it over the years. It, it's sort of... When I see Marilyn on the screen, it's, she's got this sort of please help me sort of look about her. Um, you know, and knowing about her life as well, that sort of manifests itself in, 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 in real life. She was a troubled troubled lady, you know, in many different... Uh, I think she was bipolar, wasn't diagnosed then, uh, as it would be now, but um, a depressive lady, really. A lot of, you know, highs and lows in life, and uh, she was an interest in mine, um, right through until my sort of mid-late twenties, really, until I sort of just matured as an adult, and... Mm had my own other interests really yeah. but as a teenager um, yeah she, she was before I diversified branched out and had other interests mm. so she, she was probably my 
my number one fan, yeah. Well, well, you moved, it was a logical step you moved from Marilyn Monroe to collecting snooker memorabilia, which you, I'm not sure you still do, but you, you, at one time you collected a lot, didn't you? Yes, I did. I had quite a lot of great stuff. Um, but when I moved to Vienna, I sold that all. Um, I didn't. Again, I'd sort of grown out of it. And, I, and, and it's a bit of a dead area, Billy's memorabilia. Like so many areas of antiques, actually, they're not an investment. They really aren't. As Britain becomes more of a multicultural society, I think British antiques and a lot of that, it, it, it's uh, becoming less and less of an investment now, um, I think. But I used to collect billiards uh, books. Um, but cues. you're fascinated, aren't you, by the... I mean, oh, I am. I mean, Clive, history, yeah. Clive, you got from Clive, the billiard player, I think, a couple of volumes yes. of that, and you loved that, didn't you? Oh, fantastic, yeah, yeah the mine of information. <laughs> you see, well, I don't really collect snooker men, Billy, because um, snooker really was only popularised by Joe Davis in the 20s, uh, when, when billiards was literally being killed as a public entertainment yeah. because the leading players are too good. So to fill the, the end of a session, a billiard session, they used to put the snooker balls up for a frame or two and the, and the public, Joe Davis seemed to realise that the public were more interested in that and liked that more. And, you know, he sort of took snooker on board and, and uh, improved it technically and, and, and got to snooker's end, I suppose, as far as he was concerned and, and uh, initiated the first World Championships in 1927. Um, on a challenge basis then he beats a guy called Tom Dennis in his in his billiards rooms in Nottingham but yeah um, but not many not many players are interested either, let's be honest no, in the history I don't know another one oh, ok well there you are but, you, but so why are you what, 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 do you what is it do you think about it is it just that because you're part of it you want to know where it sort of came from yeah well billiards is obviously a much 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 older game than mm. snooker so most of the billiards antiquities are much older than the snooker ones of course but uh I started with an old billiards book and I just read about the billiards players and then Roger Lee brought out all these billiards DVDs so that really got, got me going, the, the billiards bug and uh, I used to collect billiards books and I was fascinated by their, their ideas of technique and more so that you know the, the style of billiards cues compared to snooker cues of today that Burroughs and Watts would make and, and the companies, um, Orms and you know, Riley's that the type of cues they're making for billiards would be completely different to snooker cues today. Mm. Um, far less rigid, quite, quite shallow tapers in the shaft. Um, but, you know, having collected so many of them, you do come across one that's stiff as a poker sometimes, which is usable for snooker. Sean mm. Murphy's old cue was, uh, was an old mm. Peridon Tom Newman champion cue, which he used for donkey's ears up until recently. Um, but, yeah, I just... I, I think, you know, like in old clocks... Um, I love old clocks. That's my main interest in terms right. of antiques. Yeah. It's the horological world, the old clocks, basically. That's my expertise, an art deco. Mm. But liking... I think, you know, you can draw a comparison. If you like old clocks, art deco, you, you know, and antiques generally, mm. then, you know, that there's your link between that and, and billiards mm. memorabilia, which is old. Uh, you know, it's got history to it, and I like all that. And I love timbers. Okay. So looking you, at all the different timbers and cues, like, yeah, it fascinates me. Do you spend much time in the players' room discussing Art Deco with the other players? <laughs> I don't think they know what the term means. <laughs> no, I mean that's the thing though. You do have a lot of interest. You love, still love snooker, but you do oh, have yes, a lot I of do, other yeah. interests, don't you? Which you know sort of, sort of fulfil you. Yeah. Um, I, if you're going to be a top sportsman in any sport, the more tunnel visioned you are, the more single minded you are, the less intelligent you are, the better. Um, <laughs> if you have too many interests. You can't be 100% uh, focused on, on snooker. Uh, but I've never really minded that. You know, I'm just pleased, because I do love, obviously, as you say, snooker. And I'm actually practising more now than I ever did in my heyday years, in my 20s and 30s. 
you know, I'm doing five, four, five hours a day now with a smile on my face. I don't find it uh, mm. irksome at all. Mm. It's not drudgery or anything like that. I mm. enjoy doing it, and I work to a purpose. I have set routines. Mm. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to be moving to Southport next month to live with my partner. So, you know, I have other responsibilities. So, so that's going to keep me practicing and, and trying as hard as I can for as long as I can. Mm. I've got a great base uh, in the Southport Conservative Club. Um, shortly when I move there and I'll be able to practice there in the morning I'll be the only person there so I can really work on my game and mm-hmm. home skills and that's going to really benefit me um, but yeah I mean I, I, I love it I love practicing I love being part of the game and I'm, when I look back on, on my career no matter what happens from here on in I've left my mark on the sport I've won two yeah. majors I've won the shootout you know, I've done commentary which is something I'd love to be full time involved in when mm-hmm. I finish playing because I, I love I know the players' games and shot selections, and I love talking about the game, and I love being involved. But I was going to ask you about that, actually. How did you sort of start doing that, and, and, and why is it something you want to move into? Is it just so you can stay involved in, in snooker? Yeah, and I do love... I love talking about the game and you know knowing all the players and everything. just want to be involved in the game mm. uh, in a way that I can earn a living from it still. And I suppose coaching doesn't offer that really... And the other thing is, I don't necessarily believe in coaching in, in, in snooker at professional level. It's more psychological. And Ding's problems at the moment are more confidence issues, not technical ones. Mm. When, you, when you're low on confidence, you're never going to strike the ball as purposefully and as well and as accurately and as confidently <coughs> as when you are confident, full of confidence. Yeah. And I'm not sure there's only a certain type of coach that could help Ding, in my opinion. But I won't get into that really, but that's up to him. But... Yeah, I just, um, I, I do like, I got involved in the commentary. Somebody was ill or couldn't make it or something, and I was asked to do a couple of days or try commentary out in the Welsh Open. Mm. Oh, this must be 15 years ago or so. And um, I gave it a go, and everybody said I took to it like a duck to water, and um, I did bits and pieces since then. And, but yeah, I, I th- I've been doing the Welsh now. It must be for ten years or so, mm. non-stop every year, and I'll be doing it next next uh, next next year, which I shall look forward to. Mm. Um, you don't have a problem being honest, giving honest opinions when you got to go back to the players' room and see these guys, or even actually play them. Well, it gives a night. No, no. Um, there's a way of saying things, mm. um, and I don't mind admitting when I'm wrong if something you know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm mistaken about something, but. It shows how long I've been commentator for, because I, I remember having advice once of David Vine, no less, right, right, yeah. who I used to have breakfast with in the hotel mm. uh, during, in Preston in the UK and everything. I was good friends with David and, mm. and his floor manager, um, Dave, Dave Bowden. Yeah, 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 good yeah, friend, yeah. lovely chap. And um, uh, there's a way, I mean, for instance, let's say I'm commentating John Higgins, a very good friend of mine, uh, who for me, if, if I'm forced to name my greatest player of all time, it's he. Okay. But anyway. I'd be talking fractions, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, for instance, if John's on a simple ball and he misses it, rather than say, well, that's, a, that's an awful shot or this and that, I'll try and, I'll try and step away from sort of disparaging comments. I'd rather say, I'd look at it from John's point of view and say something like, oh, I'm sure John will be terribly disappointed at having missed that one. Mm. And that's a great way of saying something. Because you're looking from his point yeah. of view, and it, you know, it's, it's a way of saying what a terrible shot. <laughs> you know, or I like something I like to do. If you've got a frame-winning chance, as Willie Thorne put it, with all, all the reds all over the place, mm. I'd say you know I'd say in commentary something like you know when you when you're a player in this position, you, you're quite harsh on yourself mm. if, or hard on yourself if you don't win the frame from this sort of opportunity. Mm. 
And I know that it's a good way of saying something without sort of saying you ought to win the frame from this or he's you know, six to four on or whatever the betting <laughs> terms are. It's really thought of a problem, you know, to win this frame or something. Or, you know, I don't like to do that, mm. you know. The, we all have our own styles, don't we? Mm. You know, in commentary. Um, I think it's funny though. You often hear players not not liking what commentators say and sort of having a go at them on Twitter. But but if you ever go in the players' room, this is what gets me. You go in the players' room at the venue, you'll hear far worse oh, said by the players. You're absolutely <laughs> right. That's a good point you made <laughs> yeah. there, David. Absolutely. How right. does he miss that? He's useless and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's uh, it's a nice thing to be a snooker commentator, and I, I think some of the players that realise, you know, you get reasonably well paid for it. Maybe there's an element of jealousy there. I, I don't know, I really don't know, but um, I, I love being a commentator and I would love to be a full-time commentator and don't play the game because mm. I'm involved in it, I can still earn some money. Yeah. Other than that, I would like a role with a World Snooker as a, um, you know, as a board of people to, to, to help improve the game or... If I did coaching, I'd love to go abroad and coach uh, somewhere like in China where bring a few players on mm. because most of their problems I find are coming through a shot selection. I've seen Chinese players lose so many matches just through playing the wrong shot at the wrong time because yeah. they're still learning the game yeah. from basically the British players who've had great amateur backgrounds yeah. against other great amateur players and learnt the game. Yeah, yeah. So just to wrap up then, um, you're in your 40s now, of course. Mm. You're a senior. Um, what are your sort of ambitions in terms of playing how much longer do you want to go on because you're still up there in the rankings you're just yeah. on the edge of the 32 I think and you know yeah. chance to, to, to keep going up but you're not done with the game yet are you no not at all mm. um, people ask me you know what sort of age is it that you can go mm. on to in snooker and the real truth is I don't think anybody can know that yet mm. because snooker now is being played at its highest level uh, or strength and depth wise yeah. certainly that, uh, that's ever been played at before and We've got no yardsticks. Mm. Maybe it's set Steve Davis, who was in the world's top 16 at the age of 50. Mm. But if you take Steve out of the equation, you've got to look at you know you people like uh, you Terry Griffiths, you John Spencers, mm. and, and you Reardons, and I don't know. Who Fred are. Davis, 64 in the world yeah. semi-finals. Yeah. Well, you've got to look. Uh, these guys, uh, a lot of their money on the exhibition circuit, they had a great rapport with audiences. Mm. But in terms of being prepared for a snooker match, that. It was non-existence that, that non-existent that that sort of focus on being preparing yourself for a professional snooker match. They just walked out and played. Yeah. They, they smoked. They drank. <laughs> they didn't look after their health. And 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 the other thing is, of course, they were rubbish. They couldn't play. They couldn't play. That's, that's quite a statement. No, they couldn't play. <laughs> Technically, they were inept. <laughs> They were playing on bigger pockets, they couldn't make breaks, they were refusing pots you'd never even think of refusing now. Yeah. Uh, it's a fact, I'm sorry, it's a fact, it's a harsh fact. You talk about. You've been right, 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 right to the end to be controversial. <laughs> well, it's not, it's, it's not controversy, it's, it's fact. I mean, you look at someone like Alex Higgins, a pot and a break builder. Look how many, I think it was a pressure for 22 or 23 years. Look how many centuries he made in that time. Look at how many frames and how many matches he played. I'm sorry, but I mean, these guys were useless by today's standards. Of course they were, because we as players are far better technically. We know what's required uh, in, in a queue that, that's suited to these tables. We're playing on much tighter pockets. And yet we're making breaks, um, 100 breaks all the time. Of course that's true. It's the same in, in tennis with the wooden rackets, and now we've got graphite and carbon fibre and all this and all that. 
fitness and, and, and everything and diet has come along in way in tennis. It's the same in so many sports, golf, everything, cricket, you name it. And uh, it, of course, it's the same in snooker. So it is true. Listen, I should know. I've got I've got archive footage, hours and hours and hours of it. I've got the 1979 World Final that Griffiths beat to Dennis Taylor in 24-16. I can't watch more than I haven't watched more than the third frame because the standard is that bad. No. You just cannot watch it. Listen, it is terrible. You forget. Do you know? I've even watched Steve in his heyday. And of course, he was winning everything. And we all hated him because he was winning everything. <laughs> I did as a youngster. <laughs> but, you know, and I watched him playing near his best. And his best now, his best then would be maybe between 10 and 16 in the rankings. It wouldn't be as imperious as you would think he was at that time. He was in terms of his results and in tournament wins. But in terms of his form and his ability, he made a lot more mistakes than you sort of remember him making, really. Mm. And um, so I think what I say is true because Steve, Steve Davis was, was uh, several levels above the next best. Mm. He, re- he rarely got beaten. Mm. It was all about him. If he played well, he didn't lose. Mm. And that's, that's what I'm trying to say. You know, you, you Dean Reynolds, those type of guys, yeah. vastly inferior by today's standards. Mm. Because they were playing quite well in those days, but on pockets that were much, much bigger, much, much bigger. So you've got to look at that as well, you know. Okay, well, that's uh, an interesting note to end on, Dominic. Well, you listen, you're always entertaining, good value, and we hope that you continue to entertain us for many more years. Thank you, Dave. I've enjoyed it very much, and yes, I hope I've got a good few years left in me yet. Brilliant, and thanks to everybody for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.